We slept in what had once been the gymnasium. The floors were of varnished wood with stripes and circles painted on it for the games that were formerly played there. The hoops for the basketball nets were still in place, though the nets were gone. A balcony ran around the room for the spectators, and I thought I could smell faintly, like an afterimage, the pungent scent of sweat shot through with the sweet taint of chewing gum and perfume from the watching girls, felt skirted as I knew from pictures, later in miniskirts, then pants, then one earring, spiky green streaked hair. Dances would have been held here, the music lingered, a palimpsest of unheard sound, style upon style, an undercurrent of drums, a forlorn wail, garlands made of tissue paper flowers, cardboard devils, revolving ball of mirrors, powdering the dancers with a snow of light. There was old sex in the room and loneliness and expectation of something without shape or name. So begins Margaret Atwood's masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale. Welcome to Literary Guys. We're celebrating the fourth season of the hit Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale, by talking about this sci-fi classic. I am author Zachary Kellyan, here as always with... Self-professed gender traitor, Dr. <laughs> Gordon McAllen. And we are going to be talking about Handmaid's Tale from a different perspective this week, that of the men in the novel. So stick around and we hope you'll enjoy what we have to say. Well, Gordon, blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. What did you think of The Handmaid's Tale? Well, is that what we're talking about today? I guess I got confused. I thought we were reading uh, Margaret Atwood's Dream Dinner Party, as featured in the April 22 issue of Bon Appetit magazine. I saw that you placed that on the table earlier here at the Stardust Lounge, but I did not inquire about it. Do tell. Yes. So basically, if ever asked who you would invite to a ideal dinner party, she advises never picking anyone who's alive. Therefore, dead people cannot argue with each other about being included or excluded. I think it's kind of a smart move. Very classy. And, of course, she invokes Oscar Wilde and many other great Wonderful. folks. And class act. That's all I'm going to say. Just a class act. But I guess we can, if you want, talk about A Handmaid's Tale because it is a shocking book. I don't really know what else to say. It's beautiful. Yeah. It is told in a format which doesn't feel like any other book I've read. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when books stray off into a new narrative structure or a way of presenting information to the reader, you're like, oh, well, it's going to be done five years later by 20 other people better because they had time to think about it and to evolve that stylistic format. I don't get that sense at all here. It's almost like this structure emerged fully formed from her mind and it doesn't really need to be tweaked. No, it doesn't. It is pretty close to a perfect novel because if you break it down, we were talking about this before we went live. If you break it down, chapter by chapter, not a lot happens. Offred spends time in a room remembering times before and then maybe sees the commander before he gets in his car. End of chapter. But mm -hmm. every chapter is absolutely riveting. I, it's just one of those books you can't put down because, like you said, it is beautifully written. It is so far beyond most quote-unquote genre fiction that we read today. It is quite literary. But at the same time, the way that Margaret Atwood kind of peels back this very strange quote-unquote future world of Gilead is just ingenious because she gives you just enough to want to learn more without ever dumping exposition on you, without ever fully explaining anything that's going on in this weird upside-down nightmare. The way that she leverages both the femininity of the main character mm -hmm. and also the emotions 
of the character as the primary storytelling mechanism to then hang the rest of the narrative around is amazing. Like you contrast this with Isaac Asimov, for instance, another great sci-fi writer, but I don't think there was ever any emotion in anything no. I read by Asimov. Like if there was, it was hung on the narrative scientific structure of the sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And here it's inverted. The emotion comes first. The inner turmoil comes first. And it's through that lens that we get these glimpses into this world, this very troubled, dystopic world. And that, I think, is really the genius of this. I do believe that it's not surprising that it is a woman who wrote this book, who yeah. had that idea of let's tell it from a very non-masculine viewpoint. But as I think we're going to be getting to, that there are some wonderfully formed male characters here that, for the most part, they are the villains of the story. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they're not well-developed. Yeah, and I think any writer can take a lesson from what Margaret Atwood does here in that no one in this novel is a villain in their own minds. Mm -hmm. I think too often, especially in genre fiction, we get these very one-dimensional villains who are just evil for evil's sake. And it really does cast some sympathy with every man that we encounter, including some men who I genuinely feel sorry for because it does seem like they too are part of a world that's kind of spiraled out of their own control. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes this so much more terrifying because the commander is not some hulking, brooding, you know, man in the shadows who is only interested in, you know, rape and pillage and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. He's relatable on some levels, and that's terrifying to think that I can relate to a man who has helped orchestrate such a nightmare scenario for the world at large. It really makes you stop and think and think about, you know, the ways that America very easily, honestly, could have gone in the direction of Gilead at various times throughout its history. Mm -hmm. And if we're not careful, could still again. Well, I think that's part of why the resurgence of this novel yeah. and the Hulu series also highlighting it. There's also a sequel to this book, which mm -hmm. I, I have not read. but um. It's the, the Testaments, and it is told, uh, there's not one central character in it, mm -hmm. but it's still kind of told a little bit in this like didactic diary style. I would say if you are fascinated by this world and want to be a completist, it's worth a read. But for me, it's a little bit like Go Set a Watchman with Harper Lee. It's like some things are just best left in that perfect form. And mm -hmm. So if you're a big fan of the Hulu series, so far at least, I haven't seen season four yet, but it doesn't have any impact. The Testaments and the Hulu series don't overlap at all. Interesting. The way that this book ends, I know this is the first episode, yeah. but I'll mention it here with just sort of a teaser which is that this book doesn't end the way that you think it's going to. Right. And I mean that from a stylistic standpoint, that this is one of the genius elements here, that we have a writer who has essentially structured a novel in a very unique way and a very unique viewpoint. And then at the end is like, oh, I'm going to skew that entirely and do something else. And I actually think that also is part of the genius here because, mm -hmm. again, done less skillfully, it would be a mess. And here it is not at all. If you're perhaps just joining us and haven't read the novel, you've only been familiar with the Hulu series, I would say that that ending that Dr. McCallum is referring to is not a part of the Hulu series. In fact, as hard as it is to believe as you're watching seasons one, two, three of the Hulu series, the novel is far grimmer. There is far less hope. 
Offred is never given a name in the course of the novel, where she's given a name, I think, in episode one of the Hulu series. So it's very much a more dire, grim story that is told. But I see why the Hulu series had to change that, because we get so much nuance with Offred's inner dialogue in this. We understand the world so much better and so much Mm -hmm. more sympathetically through her viewpoint. And you can't really do that in a more traditional miniseries style format. And so I think they really needed to give a little bit more agency to some of the women, make the whole world a little less bleak just to make it watchable. It's very bleak. I think we need to put that out there. Like this... This is borderline, like, just nightmare fuel. Like, yeah. there's something about this that feels so real. It is, and it's, you know, it's this dystopian fiction. But again, speaking of the brilliance of Margaret Atwood, I, I read an interview with her where she talks about how important it was that not a single atrocity described in this book be fictional. Everything that she puts in this book has happened somewhere in the history of mankind. So she just took elements of how other cultures subjugated women, subjugated minorities, subjugated homosexuals, and used that so that no one could say to her as she wrote this tale of science fiction, oh, that could never happen. Because then she would always be able to spit back, it already has. Mm-hmm. And I think that is both really, really sad for the human race, but also so brilliant on her part because it is such an important cautionary tale. And that's what we're going to get into today and over the next couple of weeks is talking about the men in this world, what they could have done to prevent it, what they probably did to start it, and you know how we as men in our society today can kind of ensure that this kind of patriarchal society doesn't arise because as much as you and I love being men, love talking about good things about masculinity, we don't want anything to do with a world that's entirely run by men either. And this is a very narrow view of what is masculinity in this book that the Gilalean it might be Gilalean is the, uh, yeah, the... I'm going to go with Gilalean here. Um, the Gilalean viewpoint about masculinity is this very tightly controlled, I believe Christian-inspired notion of what a man is supposed to be and what a relationship between a man and a woman is supposed to be. And therefore, one of the things which is very interesting here is there is no role for homosexuals in this world. Uh, Do you mean gender traitors? Gender traitors, yes, which I I opened up here. I, I find that very troubling to read, and I think that we see a world in this book where everyone kind of has a new role to play. That they have to be there, and these are awful, terrible, terrible roles. We see certain groups who fall outside of that, though, who society has no need for. We see it in clergy who are not of the primary religious order that eventually takes over here in Gilead. We see it in homosexuals, both men and women, Mm -hmm. because there is no role for them unless they deny who they are. This is a very troubling world to be in that case, too. It's basically like no no one's happy in this world. Certain people have a role to play, and that role is very, very narrowly defined. And then when you stray outside of that at all, it's essentially death. Yeah, and I, I would agree with everything you said, but as I've established many times over on this podcast, my idea of masculinity comes solely from the book of Genesis. So for me, this seems like a paradise on earth that, that I would want to be a part of. I'm of course kidding. Uh, it seems like an absolute nightmare, and and, and even even for the men in charge, it doesn't seem that pleasant. That's what's so terrible. fascinating. No one's happy in this world. Like man, 
But then at the same time, it's like, oh, I can see how this could happen. Yeah, it is very interesting. The Hulu series handles it a little bit differently because to their point, they couldn't in this day and age produce a long form miniseries and have no people of color involved. So the Gilead that exists on television is actually a little bit more open, at least in terms of racial diversity. Of course, in the novel, I believe they're called The Children of Ham, are sent specifically to Chicago, which uh, as a lover of that city, a place that I have called home many times in my life, I was okay with. That, that seems like a place I'd want to be. Sounded pretty highly radiated in this novel. <laughs> that is probably true, yeah. The, the colonies are actually not a place you want to go. And I think one of the things that we could probably start talking about, because we want to talk about some of the individual characters over the course of this month, but for this episode specifically, I, I think it's interesting the kind of furtive hints that we get about how this world got to be where it is. Mm-hmm. And how it doesn't seem like there's any one individual, at least known to the characters in this novel, that caused this. It seemed like this was almost an organic escalation where rights were slowly being taken away for some and given to others, and that no one ever fully imagined that they would get to this place. Because as we learn over the course of the novel, like we talk about supply chain issues in 2022, Gilead's experiencing their own supply chain issues. Stores are opening and closing based on availability of what fruits they can get mm-hmm. because the war's still being fought just outside of Boston, essentially, in the novel. And so for them, it feels like this isolated place where everything is firmly entrenched and has been that way for a millennia. But of course, Gilead could topple at any time. And it's interesting that we're we're not in this nightmare in Medias race. We're kind of in this nightmare just as it's beginning to take off. Even Offred remembers a time before where she had rights and she had a job and had access to her own money and everything. So that organic kind of peeling back of the rights is something that I think is really interesting to talk about because unfortunately in our modern time, men are still in charge. There are more men in our government right now than women. There mm-hmm. are more, you know, straight white Christian men in our government today than mm-hmm. any other representation. And so to see this spiral out of control, I don't think is too far to stretch for our imagination. No, it's not. And we do get these, as you say, glimpses into how it got to be like this. And the circumstances feel very real. Mm-hmm. This notion of this terrorist act uh, where the Senate and the House of Representatives, I believe, were were killed. And the president. And the president, yes. In and a book written in 1983, blamed on Islamic terrorism, which I thought felt so prescient for today in terms of kind of a false flag that might be raised. Mm-hmm. It's something that you could see happening and people using that opportunity to try and polarize and to grab control. I mean, this is a playbook we've seen, yep. unfortunately, play out in the last two years with all of the horrible things that have happened in the world having to do with COVID. Mm -hmm. We didn't get stronger as a nation. We got weaker because people used the opportunity of bad things happening in order to essentially tear us apart. It's a horrible sign, and it really points to the fact that it's so key to actually understand what's going on around you. And I I just wonder what that says about men in general because men are the cause of most, if not all, wars. 
you know, men have created all these theocracies in the past and, and these, mm-hmm. these overly controlling dictatorships. And just like in this novel, which, yes, is fiction, but in reality, I don't see that any of these men are happy. Does Putin ever smile? You know, right now, as we're talking about this, Putin's mm-hmm. invading Ukraine. That guy doesn't seem happy. I don't think that there's any examples that I can point to where you see someone with kind of this supreme power who's actually even satisfied or content. So what is it that makes some men or quote-unquote masculinity at large yearn for this type of control where there's no evidence to support that it even brings us joy or satisfaction? Well, I think to get to that level in those kinds of positions, you almost need to be motivated by fear and insecurity. Yeah. And guess what? You'll never be happy because there is no way that acquiring more land or more possessions or anything like that is ever going to actually solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Very well stated because I think we see that in The Handmaid's Tale. Everyone from the commander on down is afraid of someone. You know, the commander is afraid in his own house that his own wife, Serena Joy, could take things away from him because she's in control of the house in that format. And there's Mm -hmm. little he could do. All the angels who are these guys walking around with machine guns in broad daylight are terrified that if they look at a handmaid the wrong way or they take platonic friendship a little bit too far with one of their cohorts, they could end up on the hanging wall. It does seem like that's almost how these societies thrive is on fear. If everybody's afraid to make one move outside the norm, that's how you maintain control. But then who does that benefit? Because Mm -hmm. everyone's just living in fear. So essentially the men came along, they created the society, no one's happy. It is, to your point, like how we got here, that time of transition that the book spends a fair amount of time on. We meet one of the male characters of this novel, Luke, the not husband, correct? It's uh, Correct. It is her, her partner, partner who she's had a child with. I don't think they ever got married because Offred June in the Hulu series met Luke when he was currently married. So I don't think that they ever made it official is my okay. take on that. So we meet him in this time of transition. And I think it's interesting that you called out these are women like Alfred who knew the before time. Yeah. Of the aunts who sort of are running the handmaid's program, for lack of a better term, that I believe one of them says later on in the book that they know that it's going to be most difficult for the handmaids who knew the before time and that it would be easier and simpler for the ones who were born later because they would have never known the time before. That is so creepy. It is so creepy. And and one of the most haunting things to me is that character of Luke, who obviously, as far as we know, in the course of the novel, at least, it's different in the, the series, but over the course of the novel, probably doesn't survive makes a very heroic sacrifice to try to get Mm -hmm. his family out of the country. So ultimately a very good guy wants no part of this nightmare society that's being created by these, Mm -hmm. you know, this far right Christian movement. But at the same time, you know, she goes to the supermarket one time and her credit card doesn't work because women don't have access to the money. And one of Luke's reactions is like, hey, it's going to be okay," You know, and I think in that moment, he's just trying to calm his partner down, trying to Mm -hmm. reassure her. But like how many of these out of control dictatorships, these awful men driven calamities that have happened in the world have happened because good men, men like I assume you and I, I like to think you and I have said it's going to be okay one too many times. I really can't conjecture. I think it's a great point that it's so easy when things happen 
over time to not see the big picture yeah. of what's happening. You know, in, in psychology, you would be referred to as the just noticeable difference. Like, as long as the change is small enough, you don't notice it. No matter how many times it compounds on itself, you don't really notice it unless something very dramatic happens. And I think in this case that it is very easy, especially for the male mentality of trying to keep things together. and Fix things and, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. That it is easy to revert to that, you know, things are going to be okay. It's not that big of a problem. It is really important, though, to take a step back and see what was going on. I think in this world here that is being described that you start to see some of the signature moves of an oppressive regime. Censoring of the media, I think, is one thing that hmm. is really, for me, a telltale sign that things have gone too far. Right. As long as we have a truly free press, or at least something that is like reasonably in that role, I feel like hope is not lost. Mm -hmm. But as soon as that's gone, then we have a serious problem. Because then, not only are we fighting against what we know, but we're also fighting against what we don't. Almost like if individual people in society had these like blinders or wings on that they could only see what's right in front of them. Are you saying that this book may have some metaphors in it? No, no, for, for sure not. No? Okay. Because I don't think that's the book I read. You know, this is such a grim book, but for a lighter take on what we just talked about, I would recommend a Saturday Night Live skit from several years ago that was hosted by, I believe, Chris Pine, where it's a couple of guys crossing paths with some handmaids on the street and being like, you know, it's the squad. What's up, guys? Where you gals been? We haven't seen you in any of the hangs. Like, completely unaware of what has happened around them. And, you know, the women are, these handmaids are trying to explain, like, we can't even be talking to you right now. Like, there's this oppressive society. And they keep calling one girl by her name. She's like, no, I'm of Warren now. And they're like, dude, of Warren? Like, Warren? Super toxic, man. He's, like, far right. You want to stay away from him. And, and these women are just like, no, this is happening now. And these guys are like, oh, yeah, like... Wasn't there, like, some protests about that? Like, I meant to go to those. And the handmaids are like, yes, several years ago. And while it's it meant to be humorous, it actually it kind of even highlights further, I think, what this novel was trying to say, that the real villainy in society as a whole is when good people, in this case good men, fail to stand up to the wrongs in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a good place to wrap things up. But I'm curious, do we have a sponsor for today's episode? We do. You know what? As the world is opening up right now, we're recording this as kind of travel is opening around the world. You know, mm -hmm. hopefully the, the worst of the pandemic is behind us. So we've got quite a few travel sponsors coming up in the weeks to follow. Fantastic. Here's today's sponsor. Visit Lovely Gilead, an ultra-Christian paradise where the fruit is blessed and his eye is always watching. You'll love our stately hanging walls, our stadium-sized pravaganzas, and the most beautiful econo wives this side of the colonies. If you're lucky and you keep your eyes averted, you might be lucky enough to run into one of our famous handmaids. They report that they are all very happy. Thank you very much. Gilead, the first society built almost entirely on Genesis 30, 1 through 3. What could go wrong? I think that's probably targeting a very specific tourism group, but I don't know. Specifically tourists who are throughout The Handmaid's Tale just snapping photos at the various uh, atrocities going on around them. That is one of the bleakest parts of this book, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. 
It's really, really tough to read through that part. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, We hope we were able to offer a little bit of a unique take in the weeks to come. We're going to talk about specific characters like Commander Fred, like Nick, the chauffeur slash maybe I, and just talk about, you know, what it is like to be a man in the society and what men could do better to make sure that The Handmaid's Tale never actually happens. So we hope you'll stick with us. But until then, this has been Literary Guys Under His Eye.